Welcome to the Music History Project. Today we are hearing from our interview with Peter Yarrow of Peter Paul and Mary. We're glad to have you here. Welcome to the Music History Project. We're your hosts. I'm Elizabeth Dale. And Dan Del Fiorentino. And Mike Mullins. All of our content comes from the Oral History Program, which is sponsored by NAM, the National Association of Music Merchants. And that is a program that is over 3,000 interviews and constantly growing. If you want to check out any of our content or any of the other interviews that aren't featured, please check out our website at www.nam.org library. Well, welcome back to another episode. This is very exciting as we continue to uh, delve into the rich collection of interviews for the uh, NAM Oral History Program. And so glad to be here with you again, uh, talking today about Peter Yarrow, who we just uh, a year ago had the opportunity to interview in his own hometown of Manhattan, New York. And it's so exciting because this was one of those interviews, as it was going, we thought, my goodness, this will be perfect for a podcast. We won't have to do much editing. Uh, We'll just sit back and listen to this guy uh, talk about his career, his music, singing a few songs, and uh, giving us a perspective of the era that he lived, which, of course, was uh, rich in uh, protest songs and activism, uh, all the things that uh, are near and dear to his heart. So um, I'm particularly pleased to have the opportunity to share it with you today. And we hope that you know Peter Yarrow. Uh, Chances are you probably do, but uh, if you're a little unfamiliar with the name, as we mentioned earlier, he's from Peter, Paul, and Mary. And at some point during the interview, you will probably recognize one of his iconic songs that he performed with the group um, because he gives us a really cool demonstration throughout the entire interview, which is neat. And he gives us a little insight into Puff the Magic Dragon, which he wrote. <laughs> so I won't, I won't say any more about that. Of course, there's a vicious rumor going around, so he's going to set that straight for us. Uh, but yeah, you're right. Peter, Paul, and Mary, a very, very important uh, folk music group out of uh, Greenwich Village, New York in the uh, very early 60s, uh, very influenced by uh, Pete Seeger, who was there at that time, who we've also interviewed and whose web clip you can also see on the NAM uh, website. So it's a, it was a really exciting time for, for music, and um, I'm really excited about the opportunity of uh, sharing some of his story because I think it's, uh, it's very important that we understand what motivated these guys who used music to bring awareness to things like the Civil Rights Movement and the Vietnam War and other uh, groups of um, projects that he was involved with during his long career and continues to, uh, to preach uh, his views using music. Yeah, so let's go ahead and get right into it, and we'll hear Peter talking about um, his early foundations and his childhood and everything else that we usually start a lot of our interviews with. So one of the things I would love to talk to you a little bit about uh, is your passion for music and how that developed. Did you have a lot of music in your house when you were a kid? Well, you know, um, if you grow up in New York and you're Jewish and you're parents are suffusing you with culture and you you take violin lessons and you go to art class and you take tennis lessons and you and uh, you and you Leonard Bernstein 
has these young people series and you go to the opera at uh, a city center at the time and you it's just it's it's kind of a cause in your life because that's the cultural imperative of this Jewish cultural tradition so I grew up with a lot of art and music at dinner we would listen to the dinner concert which was uh, broadcast on WQXR we uh, the, there's there's a great love of learning and culture and out of that you kind of sample what it is that that really moves you and um, and I think the integration of all these things makes for a richer experience in any of them. In fact, in the beginning, I was really um, more enamored of painting. I was a painter as a kid. And uh, uh, through high school, I went to one of the um, fame schools, the High School of Music and Art, as a painting major, as it were. But. Um, it it all feeds the uh, the music and the drama and the you know it's 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 it it it's all united in a in a way that you're dealing with with idioms that affect your heart not just your brain and the world of art today I'm very much aligned with the point of view of uh, Americans for the Arts, which is an advocacy, or, uh, advocacy organization that says uh, that if we can just surround kids with music in their educational environment uh, and the other arts, but music is I think the most dramatically interactively motivating one, they'll be happy, they'll be um, caring, they'll care about one another. Uh, I think there are other tools that we use to bring kids together in community, but just simply sharing music and the arts is would be the prescription for dealing with in our country and in the world um, what I call a progressive black hole of empathy and caring and compassion. Uh, the, the reason for this that somehow when you're making music you're not, um, first of all you're not reached only on, the, on an intellectual basis and you and somehow it reaches beyond your prejudices and your 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 red light stop don't go don't get to me and the the other thing is that it inherently uh, excites a, a we are together kind of um, um, response as opposed to we're in competition. So it's always great to hear these very influential artists talking about the importance of music and the arts and it's always great to see where that influence came from for them um, with their childhood and with their parents and all of that. So next we're going to hear Peter Yarrow talking about um, one of the more famous tunes, uh, Blowing in the Wind. And when people are united as an audience or participating in singing songs like, uh, you know, 
The answer, my friend, is blowing in the wind. The answer is blowing in the wind. And when you hear a quarter of a million people in 1963 at the March on Washington singing with you, and it just hit the peak of the charts, the blowing in the wind the week before, or whether it's in a little classroom with kids singing together, that there's something that makes this mutual vulnerability allow for a community to, to express itself and be felt. And in a time in which greed, hyper-competition, hyper-materialism, mean-spiritedness and bullying being a sport, getting a national leadership that exhibits these perspectives ourselves, uh, themselves. We need music and the arts to heal our souls. Not just because it's art alone, but because it has that effect on us. And in my life, starting with my, my youngest years, I was affected by Pete Seeger, who along with the Weavers and, and, and Woody Guthrie and others, uh, saw their music as a, a vehicle for um, announcing and amplifying their dreams and hopes for a better world, as well as an artistic exchange. And that is in my blood, and that's the way I approach singing at the age of 79. I mean, it's the people say, why would you be dragging yourself around at this age to be doing this? Because when I sing with people and I feel that sense that something in that situation is, is filled with humanity and caring and wonderment and hope, uh, it gives me a great sense of purpose. I'm not up there saying, look what I can do and you can't do this. That's okay in its own place. When you're playing basketball, you're a ballerina. When you're, you know, uh, you know, Isaac Stern doing that. But they also have other agendas in terms of bringing people together. But it's not as if people can't do this. I mean, this is, this is pretty, you don't have to play all that well. You don't have to sing all that well to be able to experience the real heart of what this kind of music is all about. Now, if you ask me another question, I'll give you another 20 minutes. Yeah. <laughs> this is great. I'll just sit back and keep smiling. Yeah, but I do understand where you're going, I think. Well, I intuit, because if you were going, <laughs> then I wouldn't go there. <laughs> I'd, I'd, switch, I'd switch directions. Well, there's so many things that is uh, of interest to me to gain your perspective. Um, one of which is you had mentioned Pete Seeger. Um, from your perspective, when when you first heard him, what was that like? Well, when I heard Pete singing, it, it wasn't a matter of the syntax or the lyrics, what he was saying. It was the intention. You could feel that what he was saying is, let us be together. Hearing Peter reflect on Pete Seeger was really interesting. And Dan mentioned earlier that we had captured an interview with Pete Seeger previously. 
Uh, do you recall any of the details off the top of your head about when that interview with Pete Seeger took place? Yeah, just a few years before he passed away. And, and just a shout out to Happy Trom, who was out there and helped us get that uh, interview captured. Uh, Happy has published um, Pete Seeger's method book on banjo playing. And Happy was out there uh, in New York in Hudson Valley uh, where Pete lived up in the hill overlooking this beautiful um, turn in the in the river. And uh, it was a wonderful experience. Uh, Happy is a, is a hero of mine, so anytime I have a chance to hang out with him and his wife, I certainly love it. Uh, but just a chance to, to, to meet Pete. And, um, he, you know, he was elderly at the time and was caring for his uh, wife and said, you know, before we get started, let's, let's set a little fire up in the fireplace. And he had this old potbelly stove and went out and got the wood himself and uh, it was just very charming you know opportunity to see this iconic guy you know just going around the house and when we it was time for some stew that his uh, daughter had made for us uh, we all got them in old um, whipped cream containers Uh, you know they recycle everything in that house and uh, they didn't have any big pots and pans and dishes and things like that they just recycled whatever they had so it was all very charming and in keeping with what Pete had always talked about during his whole career which was of course environmentalism and activism and uh, doing the right thing um, while you're here on earth and he certainly lived that as far as I saw and um, yeah so so to be there and capture that story I know it was sort of history for me right there but now to have that as part of our collection that we can reflect back now that Pete's not here with us anymore I think is extra meaningful because there are so many folks whose career knowingly and unknowingly were influenced by him and when the Weavers first started recording in the early 50s the singing group that really kind of launched the uh, the folk movement in America um, Peter Yarrow was listening, and when he had a chance to meet Seeger uh, in Greenwich Village a few years later, he loved the opportunity, shook his hand, sang a couple of his songs with him right there on the spot, and um, as you can imagine, and as we heard, that influence really propelled his whole career. And we know that the same thing was happening with Mary Travers not too far away, even before Pete and Mary and Paul got together. So um, all influenced by this same gentleman. So it's really neat that uh, that, that story continues to, uh, to influence people. So um, with that, let's, uh, let's move on. We talked, we hinted earlier about him and one of the songs that Peter Yarrow wrote, which was Puff the Magic Dragon. I always heard this song as a kid and thought it thought it was a kid's song. I didn't understand the the, imp- right. the uh, I don't know what general public's interpretation of it. The harsh rumors, as <laughs> some say. <laughs> the controversial, <laughs> but not really because it's not about that. Right, rumors. exactly. <laughs> so Pete gets to um, set us straight here today, and uh, so let's get back into our interview with Peter Yarrow, and uh, here he is talking about the song he wrote, "Puff the Magic Dragon." And there are people who could sing a song. Uh, when I sing, for instance, when I sing, Puff the magic dragon lived by the sea and frolicked in the. I'm not 
singing. Puff the magic dragon lived by the... Uh, the no, I'm saying be with me. Let us unite our hearts together in feeling what this song is saying and then sing it together. So, um, like Pete Seeger, I got from him the idea of intention. You, you can sing even, you don't even have to be singing uh, an, a song that's a peace song for it to be a peace song. For instance, when Pete's 90th birthday came around um, and there was a big gathering at Madison Square Garden, you know, you might have expected him to, uh, to sing um, Where have all the flowers gone? Long time passing No, he sang The water is wide, I cannot cross o'er, neither have I the wings to fly. And he raises and build me a boat, and everybody was singing with him. And what was he, it was his intention saying, here we are together in, in, in a moment of loving unity and peace. And so you felt that even though this is a, a love song, a classic, many hundreds of years old English ballad uh, called The Water is Wide, it, for those moments without intention, it was a statement. Let us love each other. Let us live for this moment with a sense of respect and caring. Let us agree that when we sing, we'll listen to each other and feel each other's hearts. That's, uh, that's all about where you're coming from in your heart, which means your intention. Mm. And people feel that. And the reason that music today or people's interest in music is gravitating a lot to the music of the 60s, is that music was created by people who were living in the studio together, listening to each other, sensing each other, and the joy when there was something that was created that people could exchange and I'll play off of your lick and you're playing, because it was always, if you're creating music live, it's always an improvisation where so much of the music today is done by somebody who sits down and puts this sound together with that and this and this, it's onistic, it's, it's all me, which is wonderful. I mean, uh, painters paint, you know, certainly uh, Van Gogh did not say, come on, put a few brushstrokes on this painting. You know what I mean? There's, I'm not putting down the, the solo act of creation, but I'm saying that when artists sing together, you feel this, this closeness, this real love, this joy. I mean, um, it's, that, that's, that's why people are gravitating towards it because 
It's not just what you're hearing, it's what you sense the intention is in the music. And when you hear that, I was just at a play last night where I heard some terrific uh, 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 rock music from the 90s, American Woman. And I, I just sat there because it was a very good sound system. Hearing that authenticity of, uh, of oh, there goes the capo. All right. <laughs> Authenticity of, of here I stand, you know. Hmm. And it was, it was great music. That band was playing together live. And that that is life. And in the solitary word worlds of our cubicles of of social media and whatever, you know, there is there's so much of a need within us to say. Let's go hang out. Let's create something. Let's believe in something together. And that's why the Women's March was so extraordinarily liberating, because the third of those people would have told you before they were on that, oh, I'll never do that. That's a radical act. I'm not, I'm not one of those people. No, 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 no. I can't do that. No. They went out there and, holy moly, look at this. Isn't this fantastic? And then you have that group, that a cappella group that uh, rehearsed online and came there and sang live and, you know, I mean, um, we need moments to unite us in this time. And music is an incredible vehicle for doing that. Sometimes as an audience, but even more profoundly, as a group of uh, people in an audience and performers who are creating that moment together. I was wondering if, um, if you could <coughs> provide your thoughts about the role music <coughs> with, within the civil rights movement. Well, John Lewis said it best. John Lewis is a member of Congress, for those of you who are uh, not c clocking it immediately. I mean, these days we know who the uh, 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 assistant attorney general is, you know, in, in, you know, in those days we didn't have a clue. Uh, but um, John Lewis is a member of the Congress who actually was uh, clubbed and went into a coma on Bloody Sunday when they were crossing the, the bridge. Peter, Paul, and Mary sang in Montgomery. Uh, and we're part of the, I did it again, the Selma Montgomery March. Uh, he said, and this was said at the 50th anniversary of the Selma Montgomery March, where I performed, and I was the only performer from the first march that was performing that day. I was invited by Harry Belafonte to come. It was a three and a half hour performance, the day after President Obama was there. And the only person who spoke there was John Lewis, member of Congress. He said, the civil rights movement without music would have been a bird without wings. The civil rights movement um, incorporated music in a very fundamental way. For instance, when the freedom, um, uh, when the, not the freedom riders, when the, 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 the front of the bus 
of protesters who came down from the north got on the bus to go to Alabama, Mississippi. They would ride in the front of the bus because there were no restrictions in terms of doing so, either nationally or statewide. But they hit Alabama or Mississippi. They were yanked off the bus, beaten, uh, uh, you know, thrown into jail, and they got there. And if you see eyes on the prize, you'll hear this. And they went, and 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 the jailer said, there's something wrong here. You know, after a day or two, and they're waiting for whatever is going to happen, they're happy. They shouldn't be happy. They should be cowed. They should be defeated. They should be nursing their wounds, their broken arm, their whatever, from the beatings and everything. No. They're so happy, they're singing. Well, tell them they can't sing. So they went in and said, you can't sing. And they said, we're singing. They said, we'll take away your mattresses and you'll sleep on cold steel. We're singing. They didn't sing to entertain each other. I don't sing to entertain people. I mean, it can be entertaining. I take my cue from that era. I sing to lock hearts and create courage and Believe that was part of giving them the strength to go forward. And for those of us who sang at the marches, like Peter, Paul, and Mary, when people sang If I Had a Hammer and Blowing in the Wind at the uh, March on Washington in 1963, they were not listening to a performance, they were singing with us. And we were listening to them and singing with them. So that moment was transformational for us. And I remember, I think, that that was perhaps the most important moment of our togetherness in our entire almost 50 years of performance. And we sang at innumerable gatherings over the years, whether it was for civil rights, to end the war in Vietnam, anti-apartheid, women's movement, climate, you name it. There were always things and there always will be things to sing for. So one of the most compelling elements of the Peter, Paul and Mary career to me is the fact that they were responding to what was going around them musically. So when they got active in the civil rights movement, it brought a whole awareness to a group of people that really didn't know what was going on. And because of that impact, all three of them were compelled to continue to do that, to use music to bring awareness to causes. And uh, they're probably most noted for that effort during the Vietnam War. And during the interview, as you will hear and have heard, Peter is very good at expressing himself verbally. And so when he had the chance to do that musically, I think it just really blew me away sitting right across from him, uh, right next to the camera as this was going on. And it was a, a very important moment, I think, uh, for me, because it really tied in all those little elements that I've always heard about the civil rights movement and, um, and the, the Vietnam War and how music really did have an impact and how important it was that people raise their voices. 
And so we're going to get a little bit more into his philosophies and a little bit more into some of the uh, perspective that he has utilizing music, as well as uh, asking nicely uh, if the, uh, the, the staff would sing along during the interview, which at first I was a little um, <laughs> embarrassed because I'm not a singer. Um, but... When Peter Yarrow asks you to sing, guess what you do? <laughs> I was going to say, you, gotta, you guys got to listen to see if you can pick out Dan. Yeah, in it's, the a, it's his big break. It's, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the recorded contract is coming. <laughs> or being ripped up. I don't know which. <laughs> and I'm in the middle of writing songs about this time. And I'll sing you a song if you're interested. About this time. And the audience sings it. And you're, I'll ask you to sing a certain line with me when we get to it, okay? Or get your horn and you can... <laughs> I wish I brought it. The children are listening. The children are listening. If we say something cruel and harsh, they will do the same. The children are listening. The children are listening. If they grow up to be bullies, we'll have ourselves to blame. When I get to that, with children are listening again, sing with me, okay? Miracles can happen, even on the darkest day. When you fear that all is lost, and that hope has gone astray. Sometimes we drop our weapons, when the price we pay is too great. When the damage to the ones we love is greater than our hate. Well, it's time to come together across the dividing lines for the children who are suffering with the pain in these are times. It's not just ridicule and taunts and bullying by their peers. Grown-ups rage and hate-filled words are ringing in their ears with me. The children are listening again. The children are listening. If we say something cruel and harsh, they will do the same. The children are listening. Children are listening. If we grow up to be bullies, we'll have ourselves to blame. Bigotry and hatred still hang heavy in the air. They poison children's hearts and minds and leave them in despair. But if we defeat these demons that keep us so far apart, love and true forgiveness can begin to heal our hearts. Well, the healing won't be easy because the pain we've caused runs deep. The injury that we have caused, we fear one day we'll reap. But if we stand together and with one voice at last raise our voices with peace and love, this painful time will pass. The children are listening. The children are listening. If we say something cruel and harsh, they will do the same. The children are listening. Children are listening. If they grow up to be bullies, 
we'll have ourselves to blame. There's no doubt that increasingly the world has grown unfair, and for some just plain survival takes more than they can bear. But when we attack each other, we play the enemy's game, and we fail to see that across the line the suffering is much the same. We can defeat this enemy if we recognize its face. Let the hatred that divides us finally be erased. Let's finally stand together and with one voice loud and clear let these songs of healing be the ones that children hear. The children are listening. The children are listening. If we say something cruel and harsh they will do the same. The children are listening. The children are listening. If they grow up to be bullies we'll have ourselves to blame. The children are listening. The children are listening. The children are listening. The children are listening. That's the legacy of this kind of music. So this tradition continues. Mm. Um, I was just at a gathering of uh, Republicans and Democrats in a small uh, Rust Belt town of Lebanon, Ohio. Two and a half days, very skillfully leaded. I'm part of creating this effort called Better angels, like better, better angels of our nature bring forth our better. And I kept, to see that interaction as it existed without amplifying it and helping it in any way with the music because you want to replicate it thousands of times, which I'm hoping to do through the uh, rotary clubs that are very apolitical and very balanced. Right. And and everywhere. I mean, that's and they're in every town in Hamlet, exactly. Yeah. So I'm there, and at the end, I, 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 I sing for them a concert for them, for these participants. There were supposed to be 16, eight Republicans, eight Democrats, but one of the Republicans had an illness in the family, so it was eight and seven, and they'd done it uh, a few months before with different people. And they were invited to. And guess what? I was up there singing, This land is your land. This land is my land. From California with, with a country singer who is one of the leaders of the Tea Party in that area, singing together. And they were singing, all of these people were singing, We Shall Overcome with their Republicans and Democrats. We are not broken and music and dialogue and listening and, and, and understanding the other's point. This is not meant to change anybody's point of view. Just let us hear each other and realize that we are Americans who can disagree and still come together, still respect, love each other. And that's what we need because 
the, the, the conventional wisdom is we're irreparably separated. No, it's not the case. Yeah, there are some people who are just too brutalized by this battle to be able to think about healing now, but the vast, vast majority of America and music is a healing thing. So uh, what this legacy implies is that it is desperately needed in today's world. To, yes, to, to oppose. If somebody wants to take, you know, uh, anybody who's coming across the border and put them in camps like the Japanese and, and torture them, we have to stand together and we have to sing. We shall not, we shall not be moved. We shall not, we shall not. Mexicans are Americans too. We shall not, whatever. <laughs> we have to do it. And music, and when we're singing together, we're saying, hey, we're saying this. We're saying, you know, uh, you know, if I had a hammer or, you know, uh, you know, when will we ever learn? for where have all the flowers gone that we if we can do this if we can come together we can preserve this nation's unanimity of spirit if we are divided we'll be divided in ways that can make us vulnerable as was germany and italy before the war with hatred of immigrants mexicans you know, the what you look at the called the trump effect Look at Southern Poverty Law Center and you see kids who used to be able to get along now hating each other. Mm. Yeah, the children are listening and watching. And we better realize that the trauma that is coming to these kids from seeing this vitriol. And we, whether we're you know, uh, Democrats or lefties like, like me, you know, uh, or Republicans, beware because those kids are listening. And if we can't embrace each other, we are putting this nation it's the, and the very constructs of democracy in jeopardy. I think it's just great that in reality all these songs that Peter played during the interview, um, I mean, it's just quintessential storytelling. And I guess that's the basis of folk music in general, is you're telling a story. Um, or maybe even you could argue music in general, not just folk. But uh, he does such an excellent job, and this interview was so captivating to watch and to screen because it flows so smoothly. Um, he dives into one song that represents the story he's telling, even if it doesn't really match the the original intentions of why the song was written and uh so you as dan mentioned earlier you can just tell that he's a captivating storyteller you can't help but be mesmerized by what he's saying and everything like that um and you want to believe it too that's the yeah. other thing you know his messages that he's giving delivering utilizing music you totally want to jump on board yeah, and I think beyond that, like he's so, what we're going to hear in the next segment is just to me is so much his self-awareness too. Like he has the that ability to remove himself from things he's done in the past and kind of take a new fresh look on it and understand 
what it all means, what it all meant at the time and everything. And I think that that's a skill that not a lot of people have. Um, and so I think Peter does an excellent job of that. You know, one of the things that um, has been very interesting to me growing up, uh, I was born in the late 60s and I was named after a soldier who was killed during the Vietnam War. And my mom actually didn't know that he had died until after I was born. And, um, and that was always kind of a chilling thing to me. And I don't know exactly why, but I was always kind of drawn to learning a little bit more about that war. And um, I don't know, I, it was a little bit unlike me and unlike the flow of a interview to dive into a, a negativity such as the Vietnam War with Peter Yarrow, but I w- really was compelled to ask him, you know, you worked so diligently. It seemed like every day, if you look at the logbooks, he and and Mary and Paul were out there singing songs in the rain and in snowstorms all over the country and in other countries and protesting and, I mean, vehemently getting out there and saying how this is wrong and they, you know, they wanted more uh, answers from the government. And, um, and I said, you know, I finally asked him, you'll hear here, um, was it worth it? You know, th- what was the gain of singing all these songs and standing in those rainstorms and having your socks wet and getting a cold? And I mean, um, was all that work worth it? And I'm still chilled by his answer. And I wonder, you know, thinking about what you've learned um, about the Vietnam War and, and the efforts there, I, I think of, I get tired thinking about how hard you worked on that and, and effortlessly is a good word for it. I mean, I studied and read a lot about really? where you were and what you did. And um, so first of all, my hat's off to you and all those Thank efforts. You. And in retrospect, I, I wonder, I mean, not to be, you know, sometimes people say, well, so why did you do all that? So for, for your perspective now, I mean, what was gained from, from all that effort, do you well, think? Well, it's a good question, because I asked myself that question in 1978. I was, I was, a tra- I was living in, uh, uh, in the L.A. area at that time, and I was traveling along Pacific Coast Highway. And I was saying to myself, did we make a difference? Is this just some endless, you know, useless pursuit? And why did we do it? And did we make a difference? And and then I wrote a song that I'll sing for you that answered the question. And I won't sing the whole song, but I'll I'll sing enough of it so you'll you'll get my answer to your question. You want to repeat your question so everybody will hear it? Yes, I would like to know what you gained from all the protesting for the Vietnam War. What the the protesting then? How do I look at that now, okay? Because this is it. Okay, everybody, did you hear that? I'm talking to you who are listening now. I'm coming right at you through this uh, TV camera. Actually, it's a Canon, and it looks like a regular camera, but such is technology these days. You remember when you felt each person mattered. 
And that we all had to care Or all was lost But now you see believers Turn to cynics And you wonder Was the struggle Worth the cost Then you see someone too young to know the difference And the veil of isolation in their eyes And inside you know you got to leave them something Or the hope for something better slowly dies so carry on, my sweet survivor, carry on, my lonely friend. Don't give up your dream, don't you let it end. Carry on, my sweet survivor, you have carried it so long. It may come again, carry on I know it shall come again It must come again So we'll carry on We'll carry on We don't have a choice we must do this. We must do this because we are not just about us. We are about seven generations going forward and beyond. Uh, we, we have a precious gift, this planet, which is horrifically in danger. Watch uh, Chasing Coral. It's a new film, the same people that did Chasing Ice. It's extraordinary. 20% of the southern portion, or was it the northern portion, of the Great Barrier Reef died this past summer. Died. And the implications in terms of, if you know, why coral is essential, why the oceans themselves are in balance, but it's a delicate balance. When you see those polar caps melting, when you realize it's a, look at it, this is a good way to look at it. The body temperature is normal, the normal normal, although people fully, or 90, is 98.6. If you're 102 degrees, you know, which is uh, 3.4 uh, 3 degrees hotter, you're in deep trouble. You go another degree or two beyond that, you could die. And that's what we're dealing with here. Two degrees Celsius is what is judged to be the limit beyond which we cannot go without catastrophic, irreversible climate change. And we're close to that. And how do we get that word out? Well, you know, some music is helpful, but film is informational. Film that reaches your heart, that personalizes, it's not a statistic. Look at Al Gore's 
sequel to an inconvenient truth, which is called an inconvenient sequel. I just saw it. It's not out for a while, but I saw it at a film festival. It, we have a precious gift here, and it doesn't, what Pete Seeger said, he said in the song, he said, the problem is, if we don't hammer out danger and sing out a warning, in every generation, our justice and our freedoms, our liberty will disappear. We are watching a grave threat to that occur every day right now. And then he says, so we have to do that. That's the real challenge. We have become nonchalant. We've become, we've taken it for granted. You know, oh, this is what we're given. Okay, we're privileged. No, it has to be reaffirmed and reconstructed in every generation. And then he tells us how to do it. In the last line of each of these verses that he and uh, he and uh, who else from the Weavers did it? It wasn't it Freddie Hellman. Is it Hayes? Lee Hayes, yeah. Did. He said, the love between our brothers and our sisters. Love is the building block. In all the movements, I've never seen anything that's been achieved without it's coming from a place of nonviolence and love. Doesn't, doesn't work. It's a pragmatic statement. If I could say to you, yeah, what did it was the violence in the civil rights movement, I'd say so. It didn't do a thing. It, it was retrogressive. It hurt it. You want to know about the anti-war movement? Same deal. Yeah, SDS tactics did not help. No, they injured it. You know, when you take these militia folks in Portland and they go there and they say, we're suffering and we're going to get our guns. They could go suffer and, and, and occupy. There's a, you can do some civil disobedience. You get take your guns. No. Yeah, and we're going to take on the whole army. What are they, what are they thinking? What is going on? And yet, they have every right to plead their case, their cause. You feel that, and the people on the right, you go to these Rust Belt towns, they have a reason to feel terrible and they have a reason to say, I give up on this system, it's not delivering. We better understand that. In any event, so Pete says, Still got a hammer And I still got a bell And a song to sing all over this land Still the hammer of justice The bell of freedom Still the song about love Between my brothers and my sisters All, all over this land This land So you want to know about music and musical instruments, but you're getting a different slant on it from most people. But I am a Seeger's Raider. That's what Mary used to call us, Seeger's Raiders. I mean, this is, 
this is what it is to be. And it's been it's made eminently more and more clear as the years pass what the essence of it is. And people say, oh, thank you, thank you. No, thank you. Can you imagine if I were 79 years old now, sitting here talking to you and saying, well, I'd like to enjoy a few moments of nostalgic remembrance of when things were, were really special and wonderful. Hey, I'm in the envious position of saying we are right at the center of events happening right now. And we will, we, we will use all of the platform, all of the history, to bring to bear our heartfelt efforts to heal and bring people together and use music. Because you can tell when I'm talking, I'm animated, but once I start singing, I'm, I'm like, you know, the difference between somebody sitting on the bench and going up for layup. You know what I mean? That's it. I'm, I'm, I'm in the zone, you know? It's a very, it's a very profound distinction. This is, by the way, this cup that you gave me is a beautifully, beautifully designed, very unusual cup. And I'm, I'm glad that you had it for the interview because it shows me that you've taken special care to, to bring a glass made of... No, we are people together just doing the same stuff. Nothing special about this. This is just what it is. <laughs> so next up, we're going to hear Peter Yarrow talking about some other artists that he's worked with um, or heard of and seemed to like, um, such as Bob Dylan, uh, a newer artist, Lady Gaga, he mentions, as well as Tom Paxton, who Dan had the opportunity to interview as well last year. And um, I believe we included him in our podcast um, all about civil rights. And um, that, right. that was another great interview um, all about songwriting. And be sure to check that clip out on our website if you haven't already. So I was wondering if um, you would, what in your mind, what comes to mind of the, a great musical gift of Tom Paxton? What, what? Well, Tom was, is, like me, a person who uh, uses his music to to bring his heart and passions to bear. Uh, and he's written some extraordinary songs, and Peter Paul and Mary, of course, have recorded some of them. And I love his children's songs like, It went, zip when it moved, and when it stopped, and when it stood still. I never knew just what it was, and I guess I never will. And he tells a story about Pete Seeger hearing he was a friend of mine and loving it and then the next week going out and singing it, you know. Tom is an extraordinary songwriter who is one of, there are many, many songwriters of that era who emerged besides Bob Dylan, Phil Oaks being amazing and wonderful. And by the way, you should hear no Paul Stuckey's songs now that he's writing. Oh my God, they're unbelievable. It's, it's just so moving and so amazing. I mean, 
it's not the era to be breaking out these songs so that everybody knows them and sings them because to a large degree much of music has become so directed by the bottom line of the dollar which was not the case in the 60s and 70s and stuff that you know, the mo austins and those you know the, those kinds of giants are they are we're making a lot of money you know with these record companies and but we're as proud as as we are of what this music is doing in the world as we are motivated to make more money now this culture has made the bucks so much the bottom line that it has occluded tell me who has written the blowing in the wind of the last 20 years those songs are not i mean i'm not just talking about a song that exists they exist there are a lot of them but nobody's you can't say that everybody knows them and has heard them because they're not going to be played ubiquitously every place that you hear you're just not going to hear that and that is a great loss because when money can you imagine people with an opera company saying it's all about bringing in the money they're making decisions about the art and saying let's survive thank you you know when can you imagine if money were the sole intermediary of 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 painters you know what would you get mediocrity and worse and that's what's happened a lot in the music business there are a lot of gifted people great musicians great artists but the ones that become big sellers are not necessarily those I mean I'm not saying that there are gifted people I happen to think Lady Gaga is an extraordinary musician she's also a dedicated human humanist who cares about human beings and you can feel it and a person who has suffered and brings her pain and her history of that sensibility to her work you know you know but um, we are suffering from the absence of a musical world that is not mediated by money that is not just available for little tiny snippets of groups of people across the country and in the world but celebrated and that's how money corrupts you say well what do you mean money corrupts there you are case in point if it's all about the yes Peter Paul and Mary did very well thank you you know and, and our success was very important no important no question to our ability to have that platform but what did we dedicate ourselves to and enough is enough you know and the inequity that exists between the haves and the have-nots and the endless pointing to that this is wretched and it is destroying the heart of America because it, if people are not getting a fair deal they're going to be angry and they will turn to somebody who's a populist who says I'm going to fix it I'll go there fight for you and I'm going to do it and then they're blinded to the realities of what else is the baggage and is that person really going to deliver so we 
in order for us to have our music back, we have to get away from the almighty dollar being the sole determinant to a large degree of what gets out there. And you know, you, you have wonderful, Nora Jones, wonderful, but you know, Bob Dylan would not do very well on American Idol, you know? It's not about technique, it's about heart. You know, the voice, Bob Dylan's voice, you know, it's his substance. He happens to, by the way, have had a singing style that at first was ridiculed, and if you listen to every pop singer in today's male pop singer, and you're going to hear echoes of Bob Dylan's delivery that was considered he can't sing. I mean, go figure. So you heard Peter uh, wrap up that segment there talking about Bob Dylan. And as we discussed in our pre-podcast meeting, this would be a perfect opportunity to ask, to beg, to solicit that anyone out there knows <laughs> Bob Dylan, can get us in contact with Bob Dylan, is buddy with, with Bob Dylan, to let us know because we would uh, kind of sort of maybe consider... <laughs> dropping everything we're doing to interview him. <laughs> so, <laughs> Well said. <laughs> and uh, you'd make pretty much, I think, the whole NAMM staff happy. I, y your entourage for that interview yes. would be huge. You'd be like, oh, I'm here to carry cups. That's yeah. my job. <laughs> like, I'll help with the lights. <laughs> you need somebody to plug this in. <laughs> so where would they go to tell us that they have contact with Bob Dylan? <clears throat> the best place let me just give you dan's personal cell phone number no <laughs> um the best place to let us know if you were that magical superhero that could put us in contact with bob dylan would be to drop us a line via email at library at nam.org that's n-a-m-m.org i think it's worth mentioning too that if you have any leads on anyone else that your you think belongs in this collection you Absolutely. believe has a story to tell Definitely let us know because we're always looking to expand the collection. Very good point, Mike. Yeah, I appreciate that. No doubt about it. That's why we have the collection that we have is because people like you are thinking, wow, you know, this is great, but you're missing this guy or this lady that really also had an impact on the music products industry and music in general. So please let us know. That had a little bit of a ring to like a PBS plug. <laughs> That's what I just thought of. People brought to you by people like you. <laughs> <laughs> you know, if you call now, you will. <laughs> Get this great tote bag. I'm holding up this beautiful canvas tote. It has our logo printed on the front. And a free set of wind chimes. <laughs> so we're going to keep going. We're getting close to the conclusion of our podcast here this week. And which one of you guys wants to talk about what we're going to hear next mike does i i definitely do we're gonna hear peter talking about uh john denver gordon lightfoot writing some hits as well as recording puff the magic dragon and just some politics rumors about random things internet all that kind of good stuff and don't forget you have another opportunity to hear the golden pipes of dan del fiorentino ah. when day is done <laughs> one sure of my favorite songs it. of his actually what was that <laughs> i said make sure you crank it <laughs> <laughs> interesting to me also you brought up dylan you saw i think you heard something that before other people did in, yeah. in his talent and i think the same might be true um although i'm not exactly sure um with people like John Denver, you know. John Denver, Jordan Lightfoot, Nora, Laura, Nora, Laura Nero. We just were exposed to singers and we were not, the people who want to make hits, 
frequently they say, well, let me go to a person who's certified, you know, can make hits and write hits. Okay, that's a hit songwriter, write me a hit. No, we just relied on our own responses. And when we heard Bob Dylan, and we heard him early because he was in the village when we were, and Albert Grossman, our manager, who was the person who suggested to me when I was a solo act with him that he said, I think, you know, you should create a group and I'll help you do it because I think, and, and I, I just worshipped Albert. He was so amazing and I, 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 I bought into the idea. It was a terrible idea. I never should have done that. I should have just gone back to painting. Now, Peter, Paul and Mary allowed each of us we, we weren't like a, a synthesis of four kind of semi-identical creatures. We were very specifically different human beings with different voices and different hearts that were together. But it was diversity, if you will, in our, in our being together that was celebrated. And... Uh, uh, so he brought home, brought to us at the Gate of Horn, which was one of the great folk clubs in America, along with the Ash Grove and the Bitter End and the, you know, brought us a demo with uh, some songs Bobby had just written. And he'd gone into the publishing company called Music Holders Publishing, MPH the company. Music Holder Publishing Company, and he made a demo. And on that demo were a bunch of songs, including Blowing in the Wind and Don't Think Twice. And we flipped out and for the only time in our history went into the studio a couple of weeks later and recorded Blowing in the Wind and released it. All the other songs that we did, we would accumulate them, put them on an album, the album would go out, and then we'd decide, okay, Here's the album, and here are the singles. In this case, bam. Because you knew? Because we felt. I mean, one never knows, darling. You, you, you think you know. You feel that you're doing what you're, you, you think that you're following your, your, your heart, your dream, your instincts, your art. But we were lucky because Albert Grossman, Grossman protected us from having to pass it by the record company. The record company he made an arrangement with Warner Brothers. We could choose our own songs. Our own designer, Milton Glaser, who happens to be at this point recognized, who Albert find, found, the greatest graphic designer of the past century, who's still with us. Mm. So we had control of that. We didn't have to there are so many artists who have to fight with the, their record companies. You hear, uh, what's her name? I, 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 she had a session where she was talking about she wanted to go away from country and go into more, a, more, a different format, I guess, more in the rock. And their record company gave her an enormous grief over it. And that's the formula. It ain't if Bob Dylan had been told what he had to do, the incredible changes that he, he went through, can you imagine? 
never would have happened. I mean, you may not like some of the things that he did as much as other things, but as an artist, he was allowed to be himself. That was central. So yes, we heard Leaving on a Jet Plane and, and, and recorded it. And John Denver was unknown before that uh, as a songwriter. He had been a member of, he'd replaced Chad Mitchell in the Chad Mitchell Trio. And we, we, we were kind of a bridge between the traditional music and some of the songwriting community and the public who was getting exposed to it. And I'm very proud of that, you know. And uh, some people would say, well, you didn't have enough dirt under your nails, you know. You weren't singing the authentic. Look, folk music is authentic in its own state at any time. The Southern Mountain Ballads were, were horrible distortions of what was sung in England a hundred years before. And they would have said, oh, well, you don't have enough dirt under your nails. You can't be singing that song. They sang it as they were. We were not pretending to be or taking on the aspects of the traditional people. We were singing as contemporary college educated, caring, articulate human beings who happen to be embracing this musical form. Hmm. And of your own songwriting, I mean, I, I don't want to miss out at least touching base on that. Um, was it risky to, um, to record Puff the Magic Dragon? It seems so sort of out there. And I wondered, did you get any flack for that? or was No, there was no risk to, first of all, uh, on our first album, we sang a, a children's song. It's rain, rain, raining, it's pouring, the old man is snoring, bumped his head. That's no risk for us. That's a song we wanted to sing. And sing tarry day, sing autumn to May. So we went to the second album and we wanted to do some children's songs and I had written Puff the Magic Dragon in 1959 with Lenny Lipton and I'd been singing it as a solo so we recorded it. But for the, for the record, for those of you who have drunk the Kool-Aid, no, it's not about drugs, it never was. There was no risk in that regard, nor would there ever be. In 1959, when I wrote it at Cornell University with Lenny Lipton, there, brass had not reached <laughs> the East Coast. So I couldn't, we didn't have the data. Later, if, you, if I'd done it six months later, maybe it could have been a song about a dragons with a subtext about grass. But it, 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 there was no risk involved. Is it frustrating that people put that on there? It's not frustrating to me. It's just dumb and, and yeah, it's useless. And it, you know, there are certain places where they still won't play it on the radio because they say it's, you know, I was at Reverend Shuttleworth's memorial singing there and I was with a, uh, a, a minister 
who went to sing that at a church nearby who had come in and because he was invited and he also sang and they stopped and said you can't sing that song you know you can't a rumor that's why the net is so dangerous because you start a rumor and you say for instance with kids who are bullying each other through the internet a rumor that so-and-so is a fallen woman I can use another term at the age of 15 she's it lasts oh wasn't that Greta da, da, I remember she was that da, da, da. I bet she was that da, da, da. she's it's it's out there this is that's one of the real problems you get slapped with an identity of a rumor or an image and that is manipulated by some people deliberately to paint somebody in a way that's utterly wrong but there's no defense if somebody says you know that and we learned that for instance in the um, in the this dark era of the Joe McCarthy blacklist era mm. Somebody was labeled, or called, a communist or a communist sympathizer. You know, and it's just rumored around there. You know, it becomes a reality that they have to deal with. And they lose their job, they lose their reputation. They lose their, their, their ability to work. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so that's the, the reality. These, these are volatile times and we have to learn to deal with the difficulties that come with the internet and the information technology and the problems that are emerging whereby these things can be harnessed to harm us individually and as nations and our culture by spreading rumors you know, I mean, that's what fake news is. Hmm. Again, You've run would, out of questions. You oh, see, that's no, what happens. I, no, I would never run out of questions. We run out of time always, is always the problem. Right. I just want to make sure I'm not going to kick myself. I mean, we've covered some wonderful things, and I'm so grateful. Um, you know, on just a personal note, I would love if you wouldn't mind just a, a few seconds about Day Is Done. One of my, oh. just a, an amazing, I think, moment in music, in my opinion. Well, thank you. It was actually written as a, an anti-war song, although it never refers to war. Hmm. My younger brother, I was deeply concerned that he would be called up for the draft. And when we got to the 1969 March on Washington that I co-organized with Cora Weiss, where we had a half a million people, and that march was all music, and yet generally credited with the turning point or the tipping point of the United States turning against the war. The, I opened it with the song that says, uh, at the end it says, mm -hmm. 
Tell me why you're smiling, my son. Is there a secret you can tell everyone? Do you know more than those that are wise? Can you see what we all, we all disguise? Through your loving eyes. And if you take my hand, my son, you have to sing, all will be well when the day is done. And if you take my hand, my son, all will be well when the day is done. Day is done. When the day is done. Day is done. When the day is done. Day is done. When the day is done. When the day is done. Do you, my son, see what I through my roomy, uh, aging eyes that have grown weary, do you see that within us, all of us, there is so much love that you still believe in? Is that what you see when I tell you, look how terrible the world is, look what we've come to? Ah, if that's so, my son. Take my hand now, it's your turn to lead me with your love, with your openness, with your, your, your optimistic eyes. And I've sung it at weddings, I've sung it at memorials, I've sung it. Uh, and uh, I sang it once in Chile when Allende asked me down to represent North America. Miriam Nakiba was invited from Africa and John Lennon from Europe. He actually did not arrive, but we did. And I sang this at the Vigna del Mar Festival and at the end I, it was, I translated the chorus into Spanish and everybody was... We sang it for 15 minutes with the chorus and it, with their... their um, program books that were lit at the time, not, not matches, program books. And the next day, Allende, this was before the Pinochet, you know, um, uh, the, the CIA inspired, helped, aided and abetted an overthrow to this dicta dictator, Pinochet. And I met with him, and he said, I want you to create a festival like you did in Washington, you know, gathering. Bring world attention to our experiment of trying to mix, you know, the, the, the socialism and capitalism, all the mixed economy, mixed but free. It was free press there. I was interviewed by one press, one newspaper, that said I, I had no right to be there, I didn't have my credentials in order, I wasn't you know, radical enough, and the other one that said I was an agent of international communist, communist conspiracy. The two polarities. So you could tell there was freedom of the press. 
Well, they were totally, in the United States, deliberately and effectively destabilized. We have a long history of that. And we have never come to terms with it. And we've never come to terms with what we've done in Guantanamo, what we did in, 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 in Vietnam. We have to become what Germany became. Why is Germany such a great nation now? They took responsibility. And they spent decades dealing with it. We have to look at ourselves and, and heal ourselves, take responsibility and offer our forgiveness and make amends. Rather than being a hit and run driver that we do this, here's a rock. Bam, we hit the rock and it's back there. Don't care about it. We're Americans. Whatever we do, we're exceptional. We, 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 we did it. It's America, and we did it. It's right. Thank you. No apologies. Shut up and sing. You know? We have a job to do here to restore our hearts and, 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 and become what our dream is of ourselves and not be destroyed by money that has created vast inequity, that has created you know, our John Kerry the other day, I was with him, he was speaking about it. You know, it's very clear. We have to give everybody something to, to hang on to that's theirs, enough, so that they're not ripe for being brought into the world of extremism and, and and violence and terrorism. It's pragmatic. You don't want to be there. You think it's right. It's right that I should earn, you know, a hundred million dollars last year and only pay what you did if you were twenty-one thousand dollars. No, thank you. When Peter Paul and Mary started and we were really successful, the last dollars that came in, we paid paid ninety percent on it, and that was considered fair. Okay. If we don't, if we have this inequity, we are going to have horror shows. If we're going to have automatic weapons, they are going to be aimed at members of Congress as well as everybody else. We must identify the fact that the emperor has no clothes in these, in these ways. And we must pull together. So that concludes our interview with Peter Yarrow. Uh, we're still trying to work on getting in contact with Paul Stuckey. So there's another plug. If you, if he's an avid listener, I'm sure he just, you know, listens to podcasts on the edge all of day. his seat right now. Be like, oh God, they want to interview me. <laughs> uh, yes, we do. <laughs> yes, we do. So email us. No, but we really thank you guys for joining us uh, once again and tuning in every couple of weeks to hear from us. It makes the effort worthwhile. And we're going to be back in two weeks with another episode. So thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Bye.